Now I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Ms. Shannon K. O'Neill. Shannon K. O'Neill is a Senior Fellow for Latin America Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Her expertise includes U.S.-Latin American relations, trade, energy, and immigration. Her new book, Two Nations Indivisible, analyzes the political, economic, and social transformations Mexico has under undergone over the last three decades and why these changes matter for the United States. Please give a warm welcome to Shannon K. O'Neill. Well, good evening, everyone. I want to thank Rand for hosting me here, as well as Zocalo, which is such a great outlet that you all here have here in Los Angeles. So thank you all. Uh, you know, my interests and my experience and my real fascination with Mexico started almost 20 years ago when I accepted a job in the Mexico City office of an investment bank. And I headed down there in early 1994, so this was just as NAFTA was beginning to take effect. And I spent those first several months getting to know my new city of some 20 million people, as well as the financial industry. So as a newly branded equity analyst, I dove into the balance sheets of several Mexican companies, trying to decipher where they'd been, where they were, and where they might be going. And after doing this for a few months, I was pulled away from my research reports and for a brief time thrown onto our trading desk uh, to take the place of a colleague that was going on an extended honeymoon. So for a month, I sat there every day, manning the phones, looking at a Bloomberg terminal, uh, and talking throughout the day as I tried to sell or buy tens of millions of, of peso and dollar denominated debt, talking to my Mexican counterparts. You know, asking them how the markets were doing, and then asking them to be a little bit nicer to the newbie, to the gringa, and give her a little bit of a better deal. And in these two roles, as I watched the different markets, I saw this enthusiasm in Mexico. And it was from foreigners, but also Mexicans. And so when I go and visit companies and I talk with the CEO or the CFO, they would lay out these big expansion plans they had for the Mexican market, and also internationally, as they were just beginning to open up to the world. And when I was working in the markets, I saw the flows of money as well, whether in bonds, which I was trading, or in the newly privatized companies that were expanding Mexico's stock market, its equity market. And when I got outside of the office, the enthusiasm was palpable. So I would travel around the country to various places to visit factories, to visit companies, and the planes were always packed. You know, go out to dinner, the restaurants were always full. And actually, Mexico City was quite noisy because of all the construction that was happening throughout the capital. Now, it wasn't just economics that was booming. It was also politics. 1994 was a presidential election year, and the PRI, the ruling party that had ruled Mexico for many, many decades, was doing what it always did. It was throwing all of its political resources all of its financial resources, since it controlled most levels of government, and all of its ties to the media uh, and other members of society, throwing all of this power behind their anointed heir, behind their candidate. Now, 1994 wasn't an easy year for Mexico. It started off the first of the year, right when NAFTA came into effect, uh, a group called the Zapatistas, a group of rebels, 
came into many southern towns in Mexico wearing black ski masks and carrying AK-47s and denouncing the corruption of Mexico's government. And a few months later, the presidential candidate was assassinated in Tijuana. Several months after that, the head of the PRI, of the party itself, was also killed. In each of these moments, the financial markets and Mexico more generally shuddered a bit. But almost everyone believed the promises of the outgoing government and then the incoming government that stability would return and the PRI's system would prevail. Now, just shy of my one-year anniversary living and working in Mexico, the peso crisis hit. And the financial markets panicked, and within a few short weeks, the value of Mexico's currency of the peso halved. And in the following year, GDP would plummet over 77%, so one of the deepest recessions Mexico's ever had. Inflation would skyrocket. Millions of Mexicans would lose their job. And the incipient middle class that had been growing, many of them would be pushed back into poverty. During this time, security also worsened. And so whether Mexicans or foreigners alike, myself included, many were held up at gunpoint, relieved of our wallets, our ATM cards, and the like. Now, this could have been the end of Mexico's story. Uh, and it could have been yet another boom and bust of which Mexico was well known over the many, many years before. But instead, it was a tipping point for Mexico. The United States quickly came in and helped stabilize Mexico's financial markets. And the changes of the previous years, the privatizations, the economic opening, the signing of NAFTA, it ensured that Mexico didn't go back to many of the old policies. And in fact, the new president, President Zedillo, pushed further, opening the economy more and finally stabilizing, balancing the fiscal accounts. Though the middle class had been hit quite hard, they actually quickly rebounded and in the following years would grow as a bigger percentage of the population than they'd ever been before. And one of the biggest changes post-crisis was in politics. And Mexican citizens and voters after decades under pre-rule, finally got fed up. And so the next chance they had to vote in the congressional race, uh, they ended the PRI's majority in Congress. And the next time they got to vote for president, they kicked the PRI out of Los Pinos, out of Mexico's White House. Now, as I was living through this, my first stint living in Mexico, through the economic, the political, social turmoil, it was hard to see if this was any different, or if there was, was just yet another cycle uh, for which the country had become so well known. And it was only when I went back to live in Mexico in the mid-2000s, this time having left investment banking for academia, so I came back as a visiting scholar at one of the universities, it was only then that I saw that the changes were permanent and that they were ongoing into the 21st century. And the first thing, the first change I noticed, the most visible one, was the air. In the 1990s in Mexico City, many times from my office windows, you couldn't even see a block ahead of you, given the smog, the contamination, as they call it. By the 2000s, you could now see ahead of you at least a block. In many days, you could see actually the mountains, the volcanoes that encircled the city. And this was in part government policy. They'd pushed or encouraged heavy industry to move outside of 
of the, the center of the city. But it was also a sign of the return of prosperity to Mexico because many people, millions of people, had bought new cars and cars that had catalytic converters. Another big change was the economy. Now, no one was worried about booms and busts. The economy was financially strong, macroeconomically stable. What people worried about was how to increase growth from a fairly low level. Another big change was Mexico City itself, the geography of Mexico City. And in the intervening years, it had expanded dramatically, pouring out over the edges of the valley. So if you went to the west, a whole new city unto itself had been built, called Santa Fe. And this looks very much like a Texas city to me. It's full of big glass office buildings, gated communities, high rises. And this is where many of Mexico's moneyed were gravitating. But it wasn't the only area of expansion. If you go out to the east by the airport, sort of poorer side of town, this too is changing. And some of these neighborhoods that had once been dubbed the ring of misery, places where immigrants or from the rural areas would come into Mexico City and try to find a first place to live as they looked to find a job in the capital, uh, often living under corrugated tin roofs and, and makeshift houses. This was changing too. Uh, and what you saw were rows and rows of neatly appointed, small, um, but neatly appointed starter homes, solid roofs, hot water tanks on top, almost disappearing to the distance off of the main roads that left the city. Another sign of this visible rise of a middle. The daily rhythms of life changed too. Outside on my street every week, uh, the traditional tiangi markets would show up. So these were once a week people would show up with wood pallets and colorful tarps and they would put out there for a day. You could buy anything from fruits and vegetables to pots and pans to kids' clothes to basic electronics. These were still thriving. But alongside were now Walmarts and Costcos and supermarkets. And these provided everyday low prices for consumers all the time. And one study has shown that in the years following NAFTA, the prices of basic goods, the basic basket of goods in Mexico, it fell by almost half, so benefiting consumers overall. Now, one thing that hadn't changed in the intervening years was security. And here people continued to talk about robberies uh, and increasingly about what were called express kidnappings. So this is when you got into the wrong taxi and the driver and a couple thugs behind him would take you to an ATM machine, have you withdraw up to your maximum amount, and if you were lucky, leave you unharmed in a faraway neighborhood. Now, after a year there, I left and went on to continue my research in Argentina. But from then on, I'm a constant visitor to Mexico and a close watcher of U.S.-Mexico relations. And if you look back over the last 20 to 30 years, Mexico has become a quite different place than it was. So economically, a country that once had a very closed economy is now one of the most open in the world, globally competitive, and dominated by manufacturing. Politically, a country that was known for years for one-party rule is now a competitive democracy. Socially, the urban professional classes 
have continued to grow and now represent just about half of Mexico's population. And security-wise, this has continued to deteriorate, though today the threat is more from drug trafficking and organized crime more generally. The other thing that's changed dramatically in these 20 or 30 years is the relationship with the United States. And here, one of the fundamental changes has come through the deepening of economic ties. And in the 20 years since NAFTA was signed, trade between the United States and Mexico has quadrupled, so that today it's over $500 billion, over half a trillion dollars worth of goods that goes back and forth every year, making it one of our most important trading partners. But more important than the sheer amount is that NAFTA, in this integration that's happened, it changed the decisions for thousands and thousands of companies. And so as they, over the last 20 years, have faced the challenge of globalization and how to compete in this new global world, they've decided to do it by making things in both countries. So if you look at imports from Mexico today, things that come in that are quote-unquote made in Mexico, on average, almost 40% of that product was actually made in the United States by U.S. workers. And this relationship is almost unique to Mexico. You look at other trading partners we have, China or Brazil or the European Union, less than 4% of what comes in from there was actually made in the United States. And even Canada, our other NAFTA, NAFTA partner, it's 25%. So when you think about the reality of today, and that reality is one of global supply chains, of making things across borders, Mexico today is by far and away the best partner not just for U.S. companies, but for U.S. workers, given this deep integration and the fact that we really do truly make things together. Now, the other change we've seen in the relationship with Mexico has come about because of personal ties. And from the 1980s until fairly recently, we saw really an unprecedented wave of migration from Mexico. Mexicans are roughly a third of all immigrants into the United States, some 11 million people today, and their descendants, when you add in Mexican-Americans, is over 35 million people. Now, this movement of people over this 30-year period results from many factors. One of them is obviously economic. Um, these were years of booms and busts in Mexico, and every time there was a bust, it wiped out people's savings, millions of people lost their jobs, and so many in desperation headed north. This also were years when the United States, with a few hiccups, uh, was doing quite well. Many economists talk about this time, the 1980s and 1990s, as time of a great American job machine, and one that was eagerly accepting Mexican workers. Another reason why we saw this flow was demographic. And in Mexico, you saw mortality rates in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s fall much more quickly than fertility rates. So in the 1970s, the average family was still having seven kids per family. And almost all of those kids would make it to adulthood. So you fast forward to the 1980s, 1990s, millions and millions uh, of young people were coming into the labor market, a time with tough economic times in Mexico, uh, and so many headed north. Now, in the last few years, we've seen a shift in migration from Mexico to the United States. 
And the shift's been so dramatic that for the last couple years, demographers say that the inflows have reached a net zero. So the same number coming as the same number returning to Mexico each year. Now, in part, this is for economic reasons again. As we all know, the United States has had a rough go for the last few years. Uh, in particular, the last couple, Mexico has been uh, growing, improving. It has to do also with the buildup at the border. Uh, so a decade of pouring resources in, of doubling border patrol has made it harder to get across. But it also has to do with another change in demographics. And so today, the average Mexican family has just over two kids, the same rate as the United States. And so as you look forward in terms of migration, yes, if the U.S. economy picks up, there may be more that will come north. But this demographic change means there's just fewer Mexicans now and going forward that will be coming into the job market looking for a job, whether there or here. Now still, this 30 years of migration has changed the bilateral relationship to the core. And Mexicans and their descendants are important as workers, they're important as consumers, and as we saw last November, they're important as voters. And Mexican immigrants today are parents to some 10 million U.S. citizens. So they are part of our society and they're part of us. Now these economic changes, these personal changes, they brought our two countries over these last couple decades together permanently. And while there's other countries that will capture our headlines, there's no other country that's as important to the United States now on a day-to-day -day basis than Mexico. So from the vegetables on your tables to the parts in your cars, to the gas in your tanks, to the consumers for your products, to the drugs on our streets, Mexico affects the United States every day. And so what happens in Mexico, if it does well or if it does poorly, will reach far beyond the southwest border. Now the challenges Mexico faces today were brought home to me most directly on a trip I took recently to Ciudad Juarez. Uh, and for those of you who have visited or know it well, uh, Ciudad Juarez had the unfortunate distinction quite recently uh, being not just the most dangerous city in Mexico, but by some accounts the most dangerous one in the world. And I went there to look at these security issues. And one of the days I was there, I spent with the father of an honor student of an avid football player uh, who was unfortunately killed with 14 of his friends when they were celebrating uh, in a private home uh, the birthday of, of, one, of their, one of their teammates. And by all accounts, what happened is that a group of hitmen drove into the wrong neighborhood and mistook their celebration for that of a rival gang. So he wanted me to come, and we went to the house where this all happened. Uh, but he wanted to take me to a memorial for his son and his friends, uh, and also a park where he and some of the other parents had poured all of their energy, all of their grief, uh, to make this neighborhood better for those kids who are still there. And this day with him, there were two things that stood out to me. And one was his resilience in the face of, of a terrible tragedy and some sense of hope for the city if this is the reaction of people like him. But the other was the drive out there. 
And so he picked me up at the U.S.-Mexico border, and we drove for about half an hour to get out to this neighborhood where all of this happened. And on this drive, we passed factory after factory after factory. And there were big international brand names, there were well-known Mexican brand names, and they were touting the production of everything from flat-screen TVs to computers to auto parts to wind turbines to processed foods to soft drinks to beer. And on this trip, I also met with the editor of one of the local newspapers. And he told me that even in the darkest days for Juarez, very few of these operations left. And since things have started to get a bit better, more and more have come in. And for me, it's this juxtaposition that you see in Juarez. You see the gravest of threats, security threats, but also this economic potential. And this defines Mexico today in many ways. And it also defines the challenge that Mexico, and by extension, we in the United States, face. And so the question is, can these two countries, can we realize our potential? Can we become a competitive North American hub? Can we benefit from our interconnectedness? Or will we be pulled apart by the corruption, by the violence, by weakening communities? And will we wall ourselves off rather than embrace each other? Now, in the years I spent in academia, and in the last several where I've been working at the Council on Foreign Relations, which is an organization that does foreign policy, focuses on foreign policy, uh, I think it's fairly safe to say that I've read almost every book that's out there on Mexico and U.S.-Mexico relations. But I couldn't find a book that described these transformations that I witnessed, uh, both the good ones and the very bad ones, and then what it means for the United States. So in this book, In Two Nations Indivisible, I've tried to do just that. So I hope you enjoy it, and I look forward to your questions. With this new president and the pre going, you know, Mexicans going back to the pre, which seems like a better woman going to a really bad husband, that was also described as their ruling as a perfect dictatorship. What, do you, what, what changes do you see happening with... Um, Peña Nieto being in power, and all these political changes that are happening, mm -hmm. where apparently the voters and Mexican citizens have more of an open conscience about what they're supposed to be doing. There's been a lot of worry with Peña Nieto during the campaign, and now he's elected, that Mexico will go back to the old PRI, right? Back to the old ways of doing things. And, you know, the PRI is a very mixed bag. It, it's a huge umbrella, and it covers some of the most, you know, forward-looking, reformist, technocratic types, and many old nationalists, people who like their smoky rooms and, and you know, closed doors, and opaqueness is the way they like to go. And they're, they're all there, right? What I would say is I think Mexico has changed. So whatever the pre wants or doesn't want, or whatever the intentions of many of the pre-leaders are, Mexico itself has changed in ways that uh, would check, um, let's say, the, the darker tendencies of some, or perhaps the interests of some. And you look at, at the country, you've seen a turnover in the presidency, obviously, but you see in the Congress, the Congress is a check on the presidency, so you'll never again have this imperial presidency because the Congress, no party has a majority. Every legislative decision, whether a big constitutional one, like many that the government's trying to push forward, or even a much smaller one, you have to have some sort of coalition. You have to reach across the aisle and, and form some sort of deal. So that is a huge change. And the president doesn't get to decide anymore. Nothing is a rubber stamp. So you've seen a change there. 
You've also seen a change, actually, in the judicial branch, uh, and particularly the Supreme Court, which has come into its own over the last decade or so. Uh, and there you've seen the Supreme Court several times uh, emit decisions that have checked vested interests, powerful people, whether po politicians or, or economic, uh, and, and really checked the, the worst instincts or some of the political incentives of some of the other branches. So there I think you actually have three branches that are checking and balancing each other. The other big shift you have from back in, say, the early 1990s is the media. And yes, you know, Televisa controls the airwaves and, and TV Azteca. I mean, yeah, you don't want to watch that stuff, but you do have a free media out there, right? And you have many, many newspapers, you've got social media, you've got lots of people there who are free, willing, and able to criticize the government. And aiding them, you have a Freedom of Information Act that was passed a decade ago, which gives them ammunition um, to critique, uh, to investigate, um, and to shame corrupt politicians and the like. Uh, and then I would also say you've seen a growing, slowly, uh, perhaps not as fast as we'd all like, but you've seen a growing civil society um, from organizations uh, around violence to organizations around women's rights to organizations that are watchdog organizations on the government. And I do see a growth there. Um, and so in that sense, whatever the pre is or isn't or wherever it may or may not be going, I think those democratic institutions, they are robust enough to withstand an assault if one were to come. I'm not saying that it is coming, but I think, it, I think they are there. Um, so in that sense, I'm you know, cautiously optimistic that, that you know, whatever the pre decides to do on that side, um, you know, it will be checked, its baser instincts will be checked. Uh, well, I realize the evolution of the U.S.-Mexican relationship um, is a, a two-way street. Um, are there specific recommendations you would make for Americans to uh, just have a different perspective uh, then what the mainstream media portrays here in America, uh, whether it be uh, a fearful image of Mexico through the drug war um, or, uh, or Mexico as a spring break destination, solely a spring break destination. Do you have any thoughts on that? Because ultimately, things like that will change the political conversation. I think the way we understand it through the media in other ways is one-dimensional, as you say, right? It's grim headlines or it's um, wild parties, right? That's sort of what we know of Mexico. And uh, I mean, what I try to do in the book and what I think is important is there's lots of realities in Mexico, and some are quite good. We've seen a lot of good changes over the last several years. Some are not good, which is, you know, where the grim headlines come from, rightfully. Um, but one of the biggest changes, which I think Americans don't quite, we haven't wrapped our heads around yet, are these economic ties. Uh, and those are vital to the growth of our economy. And and it's, it's not just sort of the average citizen that doesn't think about how does Mexico affect me, but I think it's people on up the, the, the policy chain. And in fact, in Obama and the State of the Union back in February, he, the one mention he had of Mexico was um, he was praising Ford for bringing jobs back from Mexico. And unfortunately, that's not actually what happened. I mean, what happened was Ford built new factories in Mexico, and because they built new factories in Mexico and are doing some of the production there, they were able to build new factories in the United States and hire American workers. And the way they could do that is because they were more competitive, putting part of production there and part of the production here, they could be, sell more cars in markets in China and Brazil and all over the world. And so they, you know, revenues went up and, and overall sales. The pie got bigger for everybody. Um, but you know, it, it seems like Obama or his speechwriters 
missed that nuance and that it actually is one of a rising tide lifting all the boats, not a zero-sum game. And I think that it's, it's sort of a hard story to tell, but it's a vital story to tell because it is what's happening between the two countries. I have a two-part question. The first is a, a technical question, which is you mentioned in your presentation that um, approximately 40% of the goods that are made in Mexico are also quote-unquote made in the United States. I just thought you could maybe explain that. I was curious about that. The second part of the question is more general, which is how, how has sentiment of NAFTA changed over um, the 20 plus years that you've been studying Mexico? When uh, I lived there, I, I noticed it was very interesting, depending upon who you asked, they had either a very positive impression of Mexico, of NAFTA, or a very negative impression that it would either um, lower prices of goods or it had cost Mexico jobs and jobs had fled north. I'm wondering um, if you can shed some light on that. Thank you. Sure. Um, on the first, on this 40% this figure, I mean, what you see moving across the border today is not finished goods, but it's pieces and parts. So, you know, the way a car is constructed, it crosses the U.S.-Mexico border and the U.S.-Canadian border many, many times. In fact, one, I, I saw a study of one particular car, and I can't remember if it was a Ford Taurus or which exact model it was. It actually, that one in particular, crosses the border over 60 times. So because of the way things work, you know, somebody makes a part here, and then that goes into a component, and the component is put together with other components to make a module, and then that module is put together. And then, I mean, Ford is really today only a marketing and financing company. It doesn't make these things. There's, you know, thousands and thousands of other companies that make, you know, not just, they don't make taillights, they only make headlights. Um, in fact, I had it interesting, I went to see a, a plant um, in Querétaro, one of the towns outside of Mexico City, and um, the people who were there, they make the rods on your sunroof. So any sunroof you have, they make bendable ones, they make straight ones, they make all different sizes. Um, and they started off as a Michigan company in a small town, Ludington, Michigan. Um, they just opened this plant a few years ago down there. Because they've opened up down there, they've actually opened a new plant up in Michigan, expanding there, and they're thinking about opening another one down there. And they've sort of been able to take over this market and, and grow. And uh, when I was down there, there was this very lovely man who's the, the guy who sets up the lines. And so he was down from Michigan, and he didn't speak a lick of Spanish. He was, you know, somebody said something about manana, and he's like, what's manana mean? It's <laughs> like, really? <laughs> but, um, but, but here he was. He was, you know transnational businessman in many ways. And he was down there. And that, that is, that's sort of the, the reality of, of this back and forth that's happening is, you know, this guy from Ludington, Michigan was in Mexico and, and, you know, his counterparts would be up there. And that's sort of the back and forth. You know, the 40% is the number, but this is the reality of how it works. Hi, my name is Christopher Grant. Uh, you mentioned that immigration is starting to become a net zero as far as people leaving and coming, as well as uh, demographics starting to change with birth rates. So there's going to be less people going forward that are entering the job market. If both those trends continue and immigration basically will start to decrease, how will that affect the interconnected relationship? We're going to see a back and forth. We already see this back and forth, and that will continue, in my view. We see this economic relationship, too go back and forth. So whether they're living here or living there, you're going to see a back and forth of people continue because of the economic basis for much of it. Um, and I think there's, a, there's sort of a critical mass already here of Mexicans. You know, Mexican-Americans, over 35 million people, one of the biggest growing demographics. That, I think, will continue. But what we won't see are um, a big influx of Mexicans, even if our economy picks up, in my view. Um, and, you know, we looked at the late 90s or early 2000s when they hit record levels, and that's often when some of the hostile rhetoric that we still hear today about who Mexicans are and why they're coming and how they affect us. Some of that started back then. 
I mean, the reality has moved on from them, and we're not going to see that that wave again come from Mexico. And in fact, the challenge for us may be as we sort of fast forward 10 years, um, they have demographic changes, we have demographic changes as well, and our demographic challenge is the baby boomers who are retiring. Um, and the next generation down is between 10, 15 million smaller than the baby boomers. So as you think about them moving out of the job market, who, who's gonna come in and fill in behind them that it's a smaller group, so how are you going to fill those extra jobs? And immigration will be the way that you do that from somewhere. Do you have any suggestions as to how the violent situation can improve? And also, is there a gun control effort in Mexico? And if so, you know, how is it doing? Yeah. It doesn't seem too, too well. Well, in terms of gun control in Mexico, they have incredibly stringent laws. So if you want to buy a gun legally in Mexico, you actually have to go to the military. They're the ones who sell guns. Um, and you go to a military store, and that's where you can buy it. Now, obviously, many of the guns that are causing the, the violence that we hear about have not been bought legally um, through Mexico's military and through its process. Right? They've been brought over across the border, either from the United States or perhaps from other places. Um, by all accounts, the majority from the United States, and people differ on how, how much that majority is, the vast, vast majority, or just a strong majority. Um, so that's the issue with the guns. I mean, it's, it's obviously a challenge, but in terms of laws, they're quite strict there. In terms of Mexico's violence, I mean, this is the fundamental challenge for this country. So many things actually are moving in the right direction, but if you can't deal with the violence, which is moving in the wrong direction, uh, it will undermine the economic growth. It will undermine the middle class. It will undermine these other things that, that, are, that are positive. It may, you know, potentially, not now, but potentially undermine democracy, right, and, and sort of people's ability to vote and vote fairly. Um, you know, there are examples in history of governments who have taken on organized crime, right? Our own, we had our own organized crime problem, right? And you, the problems that Mexico has of corruption impunity, so, you know, corrupt police forces and ineffective courts, uh, you know, we had some of that. You look at, you know, Hollywood movies, you look at Serpico, or you look at L.A. Confidential. I mean, these are things that, I mean, now that's a dramatization, but, th but based in a reality, right? And, and there are ways to, to do that, and we did that in, in our big cities. Um, it means, you know, the slow work of cleaning out your police forces, of setting up internal affairs, of setting standards, of, of enforcing those rules. And it means on the justice side, you know, strengthening your courts and also providing tools like RICO laws and others to go after organized crime. And this is somewhere Mexico starting this process, but it's a long road. And this is, someone asked about suggestions for the U.S., uh, this is something where I think the United States can help. We either our experiences or Italian experiences or other countries that have taken this on, there are paths out of this. It's not a hopeless task, but it is a big task. You mentioned about uh, roughly 10 million of uh, new U.S. citizens that are going through the university. Well, I migrated to the U.S. legally, and I'm a citizen now. And uh, my question is the following. There Government in the U.S. talks a lot about all the illegals that come over in cheap labor. Well, in my group, I'm an educated Mexican, and there are a bunch of my friends also. We kind of fall into a black hole because nobody talks about us. We went through the meat grinder, and our possibilities to improve our or having a better job is decreasing. So do you see any better future for people who did everything legally, are educated, competing directly with our fellow citizens in the United States to improve our careers or chances to be uh, 
having a better job. It's interesting. I mean, the statistics are, are astounding. We usually think about, in, the, in those that get wrapped up in the debates, the Mexicans that come here are often those that end up doing manual labor or those with, you know, a lower education levels. But, um, but half of Mexicans with PhDs actually live in the United States. Um, and 20, 25% of those with college degrees live here. So we as the United States have benefited from a, a large, large proportion of, of Mexico's best and brightest who live here. Um, and I mean, I think the challenges that, that you talk about here in the United States of how do you climb the career ladder, uh, I mean, it's a challenge everyone faces, right? And how do you sort of move up, move up that ladder? I mean, this has been a rough few years uh, across the nation. Um, some places affected more than others, but but difficult for everyone. Um, and you know, the way many of those opportunities are going to open up is if we start growing again. And how are we going to grow again? Um, well, we can be innovative, we can be more productive. Um, but in part, it's how are we going to export to the world? Because as consumers, we already consumption is such a huge part of our GDP and our GDP growth. And as we all know pretty much maxed out. So how are we going to grow? Well, we are going to grow um, by exporting to the rest of the world. Well, how are we going to do that competitively when we have China and we have Brazil and we have other countries? You know, we're going to do that by working with our neighbors, Canada and Mexico, and creating a competitive regional platform that then allows us to compete worldwide. And that will open up opportunities for people in all of these three countries. Thank you for your presentation. My name is Armando Castro. And you mentioned a lot of uh, effects in your presentation. But there's always an effect of cost, and within the cost is a factor. There's many issues that right now with Mexico and resentment because the misleading of the press in regards to the business or international affairs with Mexico. They don't understand the difference between maquiladora and manufacturing. They don't understand, you know, that uh, Mexico is not solely dependent on the United States now. Mexico has open market with India, Japan, due to the geographic point that Mexico is on. So there's many factors in regard to the drug cartels in Mexico. The thing is that all, this, all that detrimental advertising from the press in Mexico, they don't really accentuate on the real values of Mexico. Because my question is, how come it is from thousands of maquiladoras in Mexico, none of the CEOs have come back to the United States or to their country due to the crime in Mexico? How come it is all those CEOs and personnel from the United States, Spain, Switzerland, Germany, France, Canada, and Mexico, they're not back on their countries due to the press advertising of the drug cartels and the killings in Mexico? This is sporadically a focus in certain things in Mexico. Calderón had to act that way because the cartel was taking possession of the, of, of the corruption in Mexico, of the government. If it wouldn't act like that, it would happen like in Chicago, Al Capone, and things that were corrupting their authorities. Mexico had to act in those things because they were taking positions, like the governor of Yucatan, who was the main channel for that. My question is, you know, of all those, fact, all those issues you mentioned, there are factors or facts, you know, that should be also mentioned because most people are resenting, you know, what is happening in Mexico and the way it's presented seems like Mexico is, is, is not a very safe environment. And Mexico still, right now, is one the first power of Latin America. Spoken like a tr true Mexican. I'm sure there'd be a few Brazilians that would disagree with you, but, but I'm with you, okay? <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I think this is the interesting thing in Mexico. And, and what I saw in that, that story I shared with you about Ciudad Juarez is you have this violence, but you also have this economic growth. And they're coexisting side by side. And 
as you mentioned, all international firms from all over the world are coming into Mexico, and not just to Juarez, they're coming into Querétaro, where there's a huge aerospace industry developing. They're coming into Puebla, where there's a huge automotive. I mean, you see it all over the country, especially the, the sort of middle up north. Uh, and this is the balance. And, and so you are seeing investment despite the security. I mean, my worry, though, for Mexico is if you can't get the security under control, uh, it will drag on your economy. And already estimates um, by the World Bank and others say it probably takes off you know, one plus percent of GDP a year. So right now Mexico is growing pretty quickly compared to the United States, three, four percent. But what if it was growing five or six percent? I mean, think how much better and where the country could be. And so that to me is the real challenge. Hi, I'm Emily Acevedo. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. I did enjoy it and I think that I, I agree with your respect about democratization and reforms happening and economic development, and I do see that happening specifically at the federal level. You know, everything that's happening with respect to checks and balances, you have a judicial system that's become more independent from the executive. You know, you have a decentralization of power from the executive down. But what my larger concern is, is that this is not necessarily happening in the rural southern parts of Mexico. And so my question is, is what is your viewpoint or what is your um, uh, thinking about the likelihood that economic development opportunities and well, as well as democratic reform happening in the southern parts where you still don't have the level of development and you still have the presence of authoritarian enclaves in these countries? Do you see... Uh a huge difference between sort of Mexico City, if it's in the middle of the country, to the north and, and to the south. And if you look on human development indicators, whether education levels or, you know, health care or mortality rates, all these sorts of women's education, like, uh, there's, there's, a, there's a dramatic difference. Um, and the north is much more developed. This is where the middle class really is. This is where we see the changes. And in the south, you see much less of it. Uh, and there, there are a few challenges. One is uh, politics. Um, and there are a few states in Mexico that have never left pre-hands. Many of them are in the south. One of them is Tamaulipas along the border, which is one of the most violent places in Mexico. And so we, you haven't yet seen the turnover at the local level. At the federal level, you have, but not at the local level. So I think that's a big challenge. There are a couple of states that have started, for instance, Oaxaca, which until very recently had always been in pre-hands, finally turned over. So there is some democratic pressure, but it hasn't hit all of them or hasn't sort of gone over the edge in all of them. I mean, the other big challenge is infrastructure. And so particularly given so much of this economic growth is being driven by the ties to the United States, um, the South is further away, obviously. But it's not just geographic in miles. It's that it isn't connected in any way. And so whether it's rail lines or solid roads or good airports or the like, you don't have that infrastructure as much in the South. And so this is... I and mean, this is something a government could rectify uh, on the infrastructure side. And Mexico has a, you know, has strong fiscal balance. It could spend more on infrastructure. It should spend more on infrastructure. Um, but I think those are the two issues. And that, that's where I would start is how do you connect the South to the rest of, this, uh, rest of the country? Um, and then some of these things hopefully would improve. You mentioned um, that Mexico was the most important relationship for the United States. And... I was wondering if you might offer your rationale in the context of a comparison with our relationship with China. So China, Mexico, and their relations with the United States. If I can be naughty and cheat a little bit. And a second question, which would be, where do you see Mexico uh, 20 years from now in the global competitive economic 
landscape. I mean, Mexico, to me, it affects us more on a day-to-day -day basis than any other country, and that's where it's important. China is a bigger trading partner. China, you know, has a stronger military. I mean, if you think about it on a global scale, China, the EU, others are important. But you think about our day-to-day, -day, what affects us on our day-to-day. -day. Mexico is there because it's what we put on our tables. It's how we, the products that we use, our cars that we drive, it's the energy that we use for transportation. You know, it's the, the consumers who buy our products. Chinese don't buy American products, right? Mexicans buy American products. Um, you look at, I mean, China's a bigger trading partner overall, but we send twice as much, twice as many goods and exports from the United States to Mexico. So for our workers, for our companies, we export there. We don't export to China. We just import basically from China. So, in, in, and then also the security issues, right? That's a big part that China, it's a different set of security issues with China, but it's not the day-to-day -day ones that we, that we deal with, right? Sort of the illicit markets that flow somewhat seamlessly between the two nations. So, so there, that's where I think Mexico falls in is, the closeness on a day-to-day -day basis on every level, not just at sort of high diplomatic levels or high military levels or the like, is very different with Mexico than almost any other country, Canada being the one exception, but, but almost any other country. Um, and then, wait, sorry, the second question was... Uh, where do you see... Uh, where do I see Mexico, 20 years, yeah. I mean, I do think today Mexico is at somewhat of a crossroads, and there is a future for Mexico that is... You know, a top 10 economy, a leading democratic voice, uh, you know, strong presence at multilateral organizations, a good ally for the United States. Um, there's that future there. Um, but there's also a future which is, frankly, what we've sort of seen on some aspects in the last several years, which is a muddling through. They don't really get the violence under control. Investment never becomes what it could be. The economy doesn't reach its potential because of the violence or some of the things that hold it back, economic concentration, the monopolies, the oligopolies. So the education system never quite picks up and becomes you know, what the education system you need for a 21st century economy. I mean, there are the challenges. And what, frankly, what this government decides, right? Peña Nieto just came in. He's got 60 years in office. If he can make some of the changes that need to be done, it sets Mexico on that better path. If he doesn't, then it's a lost opportunity and maybe one that Mexico, it'd be hard for it to recover from to really reach this, this potential future. Tom Hall is my name. I, I'm wondering, is it possible to make a statement uh, as to uh, how the citizens, citizenry of Mexico uh, regards the United States. Because the reason I ask that is w when I lived there, which was a long time ago, 40 years, but you really could feel the in kind of, for lack of a better term, uh, inferiority complex. But it was a little bit like the sheer size of the U.S. and the success of the U.S. was overwhelming. And, and it was... Uh, uh, and they have, you know, Mexico has been conquered over the ages. Uh, and it was almost like, well, the United States, if they wanted to, could come down and conquer us again, just like the Spaniards. But um, so I'm, I'm wondering if over the years, hopefully, they, they have that, 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 that attitude, and it may be impossible to, certainly can't measure it, but if you have a feeling in that regard. It's interesting. In Mexico, the sentiment over many years has gotten... Um, much more favorable to the United States. So overall, Mexicans feel fairly warmly to the United States when you ask them about things. Um, those that actually have relatives here often feel more warmly. Those in the North feel more warmly, so they have more exposure to the United States. 
Uh, the one interesting or caveat there is uh, polls that do the general population are pretty open to the United States. Those that, that poll elites, um, elites are usually less favorable to the United States than the general population in Mexico. So some of the challenges, perhaps in the U.S.-Mexico relations, the diplomatic challenges are because the elites of Mexico are a bit more suspicious of the United States than the general population. You mentioned that Mexico has some manufacturing might. I'm wondering if you see, um, if there are any indicators, rather, that they're going to go into high-tech manufacturing, resource and development, uh, and really move up into a service economy, or if you see them kind of retaining themselves as a manufacturing base. You know, you're starting to see that, and, and the question is, will they move far enough? Are this few you know, pilot programs, are they, will they move beyond that? Um, I was talking, actually, an executive at Honeywell, um, and they recently opened up um, this factory uh, right along the, on the Mexican side of the border um, that is the most sophisticated factory in the world where you can test uh, engines, airplane engines, um, without having to actually fly them. So you can test them. So Boeing, when they're testing all these batteries, they can do it in this factory without actually having to fly the planes. And, and then if it doesn't work out, they crash. Here they can do it there. And it's the only factory of the like in the world it, um, it's booked from now until whenever, because every Airbus, everybody wants in there to use this. Um, and they don't have one single American or foreigner. It's all Mexican employees that are doing all this. So that is one testament to, yes, you can move up this. And it's all, they're all very advanced degrees. They're all engineers. They're doing all of the work there. Um, you've started to see the expansion of private universities in Mexico and increasing overall of university education. So those rates have doubled over the last couple of years. And particularly when you look at younger people, you don't just take the whole population. You look at younger people, bigger and bigger percentages are going on to some sort of college. Um, but, but it is a challenge. I mean, if you look at Mexico's overall education system, and particularly the public education system is, uh, to put it nicely, weak. Um, this is something this government has started to address. Um, they passed a constitutional reform to change the education system. Uh, but it's going to be a long road there. They passed one reform, but there's more to do to actually make it happen, to really implement the law. And that is going to be a continuous battle to, to change it. But there are sort of, I would say there's these green shoots. You're starting to see change in Mexico, but it has to move faster if it wants to compete with China, India, and those other economies around the world. Hi, uh, my name is Mazen Barakat, and I appreciate the fuller account of the inner workings of the political and economic dynamics of Mexico that offsets the media focus on only the negative effects that are happening in Mexico. It, I agree with you that the middle class has been growing in Mexico, and my question pertains to the middle class in terms of its attitudes towards democracy, how it has changed, and how autonomous it is from the 10% uh, oligopolist uh, part of uh, families in Mexico and how independent are they from them and how dependent is the United States is on them in terms of driving the economy? Before sort of NAFTA, before, you know, in the, in, before the 1990s and the opening of Mexico, there was a middle class there. It was probably 25, perhaps 30 percent of the population, uh, but it was very based in uh, the public sector. So these were bureaucrats, they were employees of state-owned enterprises, they were teachers. They, that, this is where um, this middle class was based. Uh, you saw in the late 80s into the 1990s, uh, you know, a change in the government. They sold off hundreds and hundreds of state-owned enterprises. All of a sudden, those jobs disappeared. Um, they slimmed down the state. Then you had economic crises. The government could no longer provide this largesse, this patronage. Uh, and, and you saw many of these jobs in this middle class disappear. And then the peso crisis hit and undermined, you know, many other families. 
the middle class that has recovered and, and boomed since then uh, is a different middle class. It's very diverse. Um, it's much more based in the private sector than in the public sector. Um, and it's all sorts of, of professionals. This is also a time when Mexico has been urbanizing. So almost 80% of Mexicans today live in urban areas. Um, and so that's also been a, a move. So the rural areas have very little of this middle class. It's much more an urban phenomenon. On the political side, there's increasing evidence that they've been quite influential uh, in voting and important in the transition. So it was this middle class that abandoned the PRI and voted for Vicente Fox, so brought in the first opposition president. Um, it's this middle class that increasingly calls themselves independents when they're asked. They don't identify with a party. They call themselves independents. Um, and it's this middle class that many people feel helped push Calderon over the edge into the presidency and then also turned to Peña Nieto this time around and put him into the, into the presidency. So this alteration of power, um, middle class has been a big part of that. Um, and then I, I didn't quite understand, but the, the idea is so how tied is the United States to the sort of the powers that be, the oligarchs and the like? Or I didn't quite understand that question. How tied is the United States uh, to the middle class? Oh, how tied is the United States to the middle class? You know, there are, there are ties. Um, many of the corporations that go back and forth, many of the jobs that are being created, that is the new middle class. Many of the middle class that are there have family here. I mean, there's a lot of the back and forth uh, is, is part of that. And some, some of the people who've come up into the middle class are directly because of ties to people in the United States, because of remittances from family members here who have sent it back to their towns that have helped them start a business, helped them get education, helped them stay in school. That's been part of this growth. That tie and the fact that you have binational families, binational communities has been helping in, in the growth of this middle. Can you just speculate on Obama's visit next week? Okay, I'll do the last. So, so Obama heads down on, on Thursday. I think there's two two things that are going to be on the table there. I mean, there's, there's lots of issues. They're going to talk about educational issues. They're going to talk about environmental issues. But the two big ones are going to be the economic ties um, because we're starting to recognize the importance and this government in particular wants to talk about the economic issues. That is their main focus. Domestically, this really ambitious economic reform agenda is what they've been pushing and that's also what they want to turn to the world with. Um, but the other issue that obviously will be on the table are security issues. And here, for me, what Obama needs to do is he needs to balance and encourage this economic reform package in the, in the deepening of the ties between the two countries, but also make sure that the security cooperation doesn't falter. That, you know, it's a new government, it's a new team. Um, how are we going to work with Mexico? How are we going to go forward? And how is, you know, the, what we do with them going to evolve? Because it will under the new government. Um, but we want to make sure that we don't sort of lose the closeness that's developed uh, surprisingly developed over the last five or six years in U.S.-Mexico security cooperation. Thank you so much. We'll see everyone at the reception. Thank you.